I'm coming ahead of this, as always, to remind you that this podcast contains adult language and adult themes. In addition, I apologize for my butchering of the French, Welsh, Japanese, Greek, and Latin languages. Listener discretion is advised. Just want to start this episode by doing a small disclaimer that I did my best to find uh, romances that didn't end in tragedy, but of the ten people that we'll be discussing in today's episode, uh, five of them die at some point in their story. Um, Look, I like a sad story a lot. I am a very morose person and enjoy sad shit. But I really did try, and frankly, when you're delving into the world of myth and folklore, the fact that half of these people survive their romances is honestly potentially a freaking blessing in disguise so trigger warnings for death in the following episode hello and welcome to this week's episode of cavalcade of tales as always i'm your host drew the millennial who after reading nothing but love stories for three days straight is wet but like not in the right place um today we're going to be discussing uh doing a valentine's day special yes i know valentine's day was last week um it it's not my fault that uh, it was an off week and I still wanted to do something, so yeah. So today we're going to be discussing love languages and the various myth and folklore that work with those love languages. But as always, first, we got to do our obligatory Patreon plug. For $5 a month, you too can ask questions at the beginning of the episode, like Elise, whose question is being answered this week. The question for this week is, which Disney film do you wish they had left as the original tale and why would it make a better film? Now, this is going to go back to my thought process at the beginning of the episode, where I believe that uh, people should be exposed to sadness more often than not, or like, not all stories have a happy ending, because if you spend your whole life watching things and everyone's just like, oh, all you have to do is be yourself, and then the perfect person will come along and take care of you, and free you from slavery, or... Uh, transform from a beast even though we all know that he was hotter as the beast and it's just kind of like I'm like yes but um, do you have to have perfect cheekbones because some of us are just doing our best out here that's why I think the Disney movie that should have been left as its old original story is The Little Mermaid so in the original Little Mermaid The things I think are more helpful and I think would be better for an audience, especially a younger audience nowadays, because, like, the youth these days fucking get it. They are on top of that shit. They are just like, we haven't inherited a radio fucking filled dumpster fire. Life sucks. So they're ready for this shit. So the things that would be different in this one is that, you know, you'd have Ariel. She'd fall in love with the prince. She would get her legs. You know, whether or not they include the detail that every step she takes feels like she's stepping on broken glass, like who's to say but then in the Hans Christian Andersen tale uh the prince finds someone else and falls in love with her and Ariel like runs away dejected and she runs back to the sea witch who is an ally and she's just like you mean to tell me that you saved this man from dying he is the only man you've ever loved and then when you finally start getting close he brings another bitch in nah here's a knife kill his ass you kill his ass our deal will be fine like i fucking and like that's not and like some people are like oh that's wrong i'm like nah that's a good fucking friend right there if you are not it's like if you are not the type of person who when your friends get through a messy breakup or get their heart just broken and you're not offering weaponry what kind of real friend are you 
But however, unfortunately, Ariel has a conscience or whatever, so instead she just throws herself into the sea and becomes sea foam. And so, like, it kind of has a morose ending because it doesn't end well for the titular character. And you also have to remember that uh, Hans Christian Andersen wrote this when his uh, favorite boy toy went off and got married. So it was a, a whole story about, you know, gay panic and how you can't always have the person you love. And I think it wouldn't hurt children to learn from a young age that, like, just because you like somebody doesn't mean you're going to end up together. But um, that also makes me sound bitter and mean. So we're going to go with that. But yeah, uh, thank you, Elise, for your Patreon question. And if you, too, want to ask questions, you can join at patreon.com slash cavalcadeoftales. Uh, for $5 a month, you get access to the Discord. You can ask questions. You'll get uh, bonus questions. So far, there are three bonus episodes. Uh, we've done a two-parter on why all the Danganronpa games are the same. And actually, on Valentine's Day proper, because it what they get episodes on the off weeks, they got an entire episode about how Oron High School Host Club uh, follows the Japanese blood type dating model to a T. And so that's the Patreon plug over. Now let's get into the episode proper. So this week we're talking the five love languages and the and we're going to do five stories from myth and folklore that I think are close analogs that kind of work with these stories. Again, I've had to pull make some uh, like tiny tweaks and some of these are a little bit of a stretch. But uh, in my defense, like 90% of folkloric romances are either it's like, oh, how cute they are that they're in love until they're dead. Or most of them only follow like two of the love languages a lot. Like, so I had to get creative. And uh, don't worry, I got enough tragic romance for a follow up episode. So uh, be ready for the sequel that no one asked for. So. Uh, if you're curious about love languages, one of the things you can do is there is a free quiz online at the number 5 lovelanguages.com. It's going to try to sell you shit, but you can take the quiz for free. The You can't save your results, because otherwise it'll make you sign up for an emails, and then the, that's how they get you. But you can still take the quiz. But the background on the love languages is that it's a concept put forth by Baptist minister Gary Chapman in his 1992 book, the five love languages, how to express heartfelt commitment to your mate. Now, there's always some red flags here. Um, the first one being Baptist minister, and the second one being, who the fuck calls their partner a mate? Like, yes, I am one of those annoying straight people who, if I were to get in a relationship, I'd call them my partner, not my girlfriend. But that's also because, like, I'm going to be 28. And, like, once you start to get close to your 30s, like, girlfriend sounds juvenile. Like, they're my partner. We're because we're together and we're just trying to get fucking through this. But anyway. So his claim is that there are five love languages. And he has found these out through his counseling practices. And with each person has two main love languages. They have their primary and then they have their secondary. And so you can take this little quiz and it'll actually give you all your percentages in all five. Sometimes it adds up to 99 because as everything, you know, they have that point of margin of error and take it with a grain of salt. It is an internet quiz. It can't truly tell you everything you need to know about yourself in 30 questions. But, you know, I'm a millennial, and uh, I used to take BuzzFeed quizzes for fun, so that makes me sound so boring. <laughs> just, you ever just get bored, and on a Saturday night, you just have a drink and be sad and take BuzzFeed quizzes and be like, this is why no one understands me. It's because I took this quiz where I made a... I made it, I topped everything, put everything on an everything bagel, and it told me that I'm a carry from the Sex in the City. Like, it's the fucking dumbest thing. <laughs> so, according to Chaplin, 
the main way to find one's love language is that you have to observe the way that you express love and analyze what they complain about and request from their partner most often. So he theorizes that people tend to naturally give love in the way they would prefer to receive love, and communication between partners is most beneficial when they demonstrate caring to the other person by showing love in their preferred language. So it's the kind of thing, like the example they say where it's like, the husband in this per in this thing is a person who likes acts of service whereas the wife is a words of affirmation person so when he does things like he goes and gets the groceries and he mows the lawn he sees these as acts of love where his wife sees them as okay he's actually helping around the fucking house and she's concerned because you know he's just like you know it bothers me that you don't help out every now and again with like little tasks when i'm busy and she's like I just want you to tell me you love me more. So it's the kind of thing where the best way to communicate in those snatchers is him making sure he goes out of his way to compliment his wife unsolicited. And she every now and again goes and like does something that's helpful to him, like picks him up some toys for his hobby. So the way I ordered this is I took the quiz myself and then I put them in order based off of my results. Uh, everybody has different results. Uh, my numbers are very low in a lot of places, so it's not surprising. Uh, <laughs> I'm hard to please. It's the mental illness. So for me personally, uh, my primary love language is acts of service. I love when people do things for me. And then my secondary one is words of affirmation. Tell me I'm pretty. Uh, followed by quality time, uh, physical touch, and then my lowest being gift giving. I'm, um, I'm very incredibly grateful. I got a very delightful present very recently. Um, that moved me to tears because it was uh, very thoughtful but i'm not a big gift person <laughs> i i usually because i'm just like i can get my own stuff i'd rather you you know it means more it would mean more to me for example somebody would be like i know you're tired and busy do you need me to do the dishes motherfucker i would be wetter than niagara falls being asked if they if, be, if someone just offering to do my dishes <laughs> Please, someone do the dishes. There's so many. They're fucking in there. I swear to God, it like they reproduce. There, are, there are dishes in my sink right now that I've never seen before, and I don't know where the fuck they came from and why they're in there. And that's why I need an access service person who will help me do the dishes because they're fucking in there and they're never gonna be done. And I did three loads today, and the sink doesn't look any less empty. <laughs> fucking hate dishes. Anyway, this is not supposed to be my uh, short mental decline while we talk about love. This is, uh, we're going to go into our first topic, which is acts of service. So the way I'm structuring these is I will, like, for example, we'll do acts of service. I'll explain what an acts of service person likes, the general blurb from the fivelovelanguages.com, and then I'll go into the story that I think best equates that. So as I mentioned, the first one is acts of service. Uh, for me, acts of service is 37% of my love language. Um, again, I just, I really need, I, I need to be taken care of. <laughs> so people who like acts of service, anything you do to ease the burden of responsibilities weighing on your partner speaks volumes. However, laziness, broken commitments, and making more work for them tells people who are acts of service focused that their feelings don't matter. Uh, when things are done for those who speak this language out of love and not obligation, it makes them feel very special and nice. Which again, as a person who speaks this love language yes oh my god my i was sick recently and my parents went and picked up my groceries for me oh my god i never felt so fucking special and loved in my life <laughs> so this one was the easiest one to do 
because acts of service there are so many romances where it's like let me overcome this trial to prove my love for you fair princess so i'm just like well i know what my fan base wants so we're gonna do some arthuriana but not just any arthuriana this is as far as i can find which there's probably more but i only have so much time to do this the research for these so i could not find anything as far as I can find, this is one of the oldest Arthurian tales we have. It is an old Welsh, so please excuse me for fucking up some Welsh. I'm going to fuck up the Welsh. I'm sorry. The Trust me, that Duolingo owl is very angry with me that I haven't done my Welsh in like three days, and it's just he's just like, hi, you gonna come back? I'm gonna do your bed with a knife. And I'm like, is did you get that knife from my fucking sink? <laughs> so, this is Colwick and Olwyn. Um, again, I apologize so much for the Welsh. It is not an easy tongue for people who've learned English first because there's a... Or, like, for example, I learned English first and then I learned a lot of French second, and French has a lot of vowels. Welsh does not. <laughs> so, um, to give you an idea, and again, I am not shitting on the Welsh. Welsh is a beautiful language. I want to learn it. I will get to it when I get to it, Duolingo Owl. But I did six hours. It took me six hours to get this story done because there's so much Welsh. And part of the reason that also took so long is because I wrote some sentences where the names only had like two vowels in them. And it and my brain hurt so much, I took a three-hour nap in the middle because I just couldn't do it. <laughs> like, I was just so the mental load of remembering that like dd is th is like oh <laughs> I, I i put myself to sleep it's like language put my ass to sleep they be calling it nyquil all right so here we go so the story begins with colwick's father king cliff son of clifton losing his life golethith during a difficult childbirth which is how col was born later in life he remarries and colwick's stepmother wants to consolidate power and tries to marry him to her daughter so he she wanted her to marry his stepsister now ignoring how prevalent step-sibling porn is now which is like i we're not even going to get into that can of words it's like it's like they're related but they're not it's like we're not going to get into that when this story was written it was not uncommon for that sort of thing to happen you would have a lot of times if like a king had to remarry in order to consolidate power they would do like a okay here is your it's like your son's going to marry your stepsister so like they're still in the same friggin uh, family okay uh let's see just to prove a point about this about how wild this is getting uh one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen six fifteen sixteen seventeen okay i'm not even halfway down the Pornhub front page for today and there are already 17 things about step-siblings or step-parents so like it's not a new phenomena 
let me close that incognito tab and <laughs> so yeah so Coltlex was trying to go around and his stepmother's trying to be get him with his stepsister you know constantly setting up things like oh no Colwick your stepsister's stuck in the portcullis what will we do and Cole looks like that's no, that's not happening. So his stepmom in anger is just like, you know what, you little shit. If my daughter's not good enough for you, I'm gonna make it so that you're cursed to go mad if you don't marry the giant's daughter, Olwyn. So she's just like, you know what, fuck you. She's like, you want you want someone so you think you're so high and mighty? My daughter, daughter's not good enough for you. All right, there's the chief giant Yisbathadin. Uh, his full name is Yathbathodin Pencar. You're going to have to try to figure out how to marry his daughter, fucker. And then, wham, bam, thank you, bam, and he's stuck. So his father's just like, okay, I know your stepmom's being a bit of a pill, it's fine. Um, if you're, it's like, you know what, it wouldn't hurt to have a, you know, the giants on side. What you should do is you should go visit your famous cousin, Arthur, and he might be able to help you. And it's just like, Arthur, it's very interesting that we, you are Golithith. Uh, no, Golithith was my mother. You are King Silith, son of Silithith, and I'm Colwick, and yet our cousin's name is Arthur. Though, he, his name has vowels in it. Like, isn't that wild? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not trying to take the piss out of the Welsh language, but like, god damn. So... He goes to the sort of Selawig, which is in Cornwall, and he goes and his cousin is like, yeah, I'll help you. But you can't borrow my sword named Kellithwick. And you can't borrow, he's like, he names like six weapons. He's like, you can't borrow this, you can't borrow that. And he's like, you also can't borrow my wife. Ha! So he instead sends the assistance of six knights and some armaments. We've got Kai, who will eventually, with some of these knights, they turned into knights we know later, um, who I've mentioned in both the previous Arthurian episodes, whether it be season one's uh, episode two, was it episode two? Uh, our historian tries to recall as the entire messy Arthurian plot, or in this season, which I believe was two episodes ago, which was uh, Arthurian two featuring uh, Knight Sir not appearing in this film. So we have Kai who will turn into Sir Kay, and this is the welsh tradition so kai is the best one we have bedwir who turns into bedivere gwalkmai who will become gawain and then we have three that don't necessarily have parallels moving forward and we have gwerther gwalstad yithith menwa son of targwithith and synthilig gwafarfith the worst part about that is I wrote that sentence down, and that's one of the sentences that put me to sleep. And Synthilig Gwarfith doesn't do shit. Like, I use Wikipedia for part of this. His name wasn't even hyperlinked. That's how little he mattered in this story, apparently. He's just there. So the group travels to something, and they find the fairest castles in the world, which is where Yisbethidin and Olwen live, and they meet Kustinin, who is the... Uh, Yisbethidin's brother and he kind of holds a grudge against his brother because he's like I'm out here being a shepherd because my brother came in killed 23 out of my 24 kids and then made me be a fucking sheep herder and everyone's like wow that sucks 
we're trying to get in there so I can meet his daughter. Do you think you could help us? He's like, yeah, fuck that guy. My only request is that I'm going to send my last son, whose name is, where is it going? Goru. And you have to protect him. And so Sir Kai, who is the best knight, is like, I will protect Goru with my life. And he's like, cool. All right. Here's how you get in. You got to sneak up to the castle at this time. This will be the least amount of time you can do with this stuff. So they approach with stealth and they kill nine porters and nine guard dogs and gain access to Yisbethidin's main hall. He tries to kill Colwick with a poison dart, but then Menwa, Bedvir, and Colwick all take turns like kicking the shit out of him until he relents. Colwick's just like, I'm here for your daughter. He's like, I love Olwen and I want to marry her. And Olwen's like, kind of cool with it. She's like, I mean, he he is very strong and dashing. and You know, I could see myself marrying someone like him. Like, he's very strong. And his father's like, he's like, look, you're very dashing. You kicked my ass. My only concern is that I have been prophesized that when my daughter marries, I will die. I will not live past my daughter's wedding. He's like, so if you want my daughter, you're going to have to essentially help me prepare for my funeral. And he's like, and that's going to involve a lot of legwork. And Olwen's like, Daddy, I I appreciate this. And I'm sure these men could take care of the tasks, but we're not giving them all the tasks. We have dozens of servants. You have all those people that you stole from your brother to help you. Like, we can do some of the work. He's like, okay, I will give you two tasks. Usually there's more, but um, with the fragmentation and the way I do research, I can only find a lot of details about two of the tasks. So the first task is he wants one of the pure white tusks of the, here we go, Yis Grithwithwin Penavid, which is the pure white tusked boar. However, he will know if the tusks were taken after the boar died because they will lose their sheen. And if they lose their sheen, they're not good enough to trim his beard before his funeral. So he wants one of the boars. And then he also needs a haircut for his... There's a lot of ceremonial haircutting that I could not be fucked to look up if I'm being 100% honest. But there's a big thing about ceremonial haircutting in old Celtic tales. And he's like, so there is a twitch twitheth boar and there is a comb and scissors trapped in his mane. Those are the instruments I want my hair to be done with for my funeral. And Colwick was just like, so I gotta t- essentially fight two monster boars to get stuff from their faces, and then I can marry your daughter. He's like, yes. And he's like, okay, I will be, I will return with the items, and I will personally do your grooming for your funeral. You have my word. So off they fuck. So message goes back to Arthur, and Arthur's just like, you're going after the Yisquith with Pen Penbeth. He's like, I've heard those tusks are amazing. Here's what I'm going to do. He's like, I know a guy who will help you be able to rustle the tusks out of this boar. And I can even send you with one of my best tracking dogs. All I ask is that I, since the giant only wants one of the tusks, can I have the other one? And Cole looks like, whatever, sure. I don't know if boars can regrow their tusks. I'm gonna uh, actually let's let's find that out real quick. One, uh, please hold. 
Okay, after learning a lot of random stuff about animal husbandry, so the way it works is that um, if a pig's tusks aren't clipped before they start to reach sexual maturity, uh, they will continuously grow back because they usually get broken uh, searching for food or fighting off other males. So what I found is domesticated pigs can cannot grow their tusk packs if they were clipped as they were piglets, uh, which most are. As all pigs get hairier as they reach sexual maturity, they just do not aren't as hairy and cannot grow their tusks as long or as hard as boar, wild boars can do. Uh, the more you know. So yeah, so they, so Arthur's like, cool, alright, I want one of those tusks. So he lends him his finest hunting dog, which is named Cavill, and he gives him a letter asking assistance from Odger, the son of Aeth, the uh, king of Ireland. Using Cavill, they were able to find the boar, and uh, one of the people who came with Odger was a man called Cadwa of Pydon, which was the old Welsh name for the Pictlands, which is like northern Englandish area. And he's the one who actually wrestled the boar down to the ground so that Odger could extract the tusks. However, in some, you know, weird animalistic bloodlust, uh, Kadwa uh, then cleaved the boar's head in twain so that uh, it wouldn't uh, suffer because it was, uh, it would take a while for the tusks to grow back. So then we get to the hunt for the Twitch Twifith boar, which what is over half of the story in itself which is why some like some editions of the story say he was given like 30 tasks and some say he was given like 25 tasks or like even just like four tasks or the nine or three which are usually magical numbers but i'm only doing the two because this this one in itself has like five different tasks so in order to hunt the twitch twitheth boar they first need to find maven son of mordron who was an animal tamer, and he was the only person who could tame the wild dog, Drudwin. And Drudwin is the only dog whose nose could be powerful enough and detect the uh, scent and track of the Twitch Twith. The men are just like, okay, well, how the hell fuck are we going to find this guy? So according to legend, Maven was taken from his mother on the third night after his birth and was imprisoned somewhere in Gloucester. So in Stelpson, the health of Gwithyr Gwalstad Iefeth, who was a shapeshifter and who used his ability to speak to the eldest animals in the area to try to figure out if they knew anything about it. And through the help of the Lin Linwa salmon, who is the oldest salmon in the world, that salmon escited Kai and Bedvir to where Mevin's present was. So they were able to figure out where it was. They heard Maven in there and he does his, you know, standard poem about, Oh, it sucks to be a prisoner. So then what happens is Colwick and the others assault the prison from the front and they fight and kill nine witches while Kai and Bedvir sneak around the back and they break out uh, Maven. Uh, once they're done, Maven gains the leash, the collar, and the chain for Druidwin from the body of the slain witches in the front and they make their escape. So Maven uses the help of the wild dog Rihami, who is the... Uh, I'm using dog terms, like, this isn't me trying to be funny, but she's the best bitch. And she is, like, ir she is the most irresistible uh, lady dog that has ever been seen. And, of course, she, he, like, sticks her out like a piece of ham. And Druidwin comes in and he's just like, hell yeah. 
and he mates with her for hours and then once he's tired and kind of like falls over you know that point when you're it's like anybody for my heterosexual couples and or uh, gay couples you know that point after either you where your man is done having sex and they just fall over and they're just dust and they're like (laughs) that's when uh maven runs in and puts the leash and the chain and the collar on him which to be fair like it's cool that they saved this guy from prison but like his like super secret i have to be locked away animal training technique is to let them fuck wildly and then get them when they're tired i i don't that i don't know how much of a marketable skill that is but sure why not so maven uses Dridwin to go to find the uh, trail of the twitch twiffith and when they start to figure out like a, around his like hunting grounds the Enchanter Knight, Menwa, son of Tergwith, uh, turns into a bird and scouts ahead, fighting the boar with his seven piglets. So, fun little fact about the Twitch Twithith boar. Originally, a Twitch was the son of Prince Terith, who committed a grave sin against the fairy folk and was turned into a giant boar with poisonous bristles. Uh, his father, who still loved him even though he turned into a boar because good parenting, uh went and the reason he has scissors and a comb stuck in his hair is because he went to try to groom his boar son and he's like well if you're gonna he's like i still love you my boar child but you need to be presentable and but the bristles of the boar are poisonous so his father died being a family man and wanting not to be a father who accidentally killed his own children the twitch twitheth boar is super protective of his seven piglets and so when menwa went in as a bird he was worried that it was a bird of prey after his piglets and he fought back menwa tried to get the comb out of his hair and but uh, hit one of his wings got covered in poison and it was forever disfigured when he transformed back into a man so now menwa with a axe to grind and something to prove is like all right you gotta let me help get the scissors and shit out of the twitch twitheth spores head and they're just like and Kolik was like, all right, man, like, you do you. Like, as long as we get the shit, like, I don't care who does it. So between him, Maben, Menwa, and Goru, they drove the boar into the Severn River, where the men could wade in and wrestle the comb and scissors from the boar's head, and if they were, and quickly, like, wash off any, po- and, like, wash the poison off him. Uh, it is said that once the, they got to a point where the boar, they got the stuff and the boar was able to touch the riverbed, and it just bolted. But then it was prophesied that Drudwin's pups with Rahemi, who were going to be named Aeneid and Aethern, would be the ones to hunt down, chase, and kill the Twitch Twitheth boar off the coast of Ireland. So with the items requested, Colwick returns to Yisbethedin's court, and he uses the tusk to shave him, and then does a nice you know, trim and gives him like a high fade, you know, trim and combing. And Yispedin closes his eyes and drops dead. As a further sign of respect, Colwick only asks Custin, his brother, to assist with the digging of the grave where Yispedin would be buried. Once this is done, uh, Colwick and Custin split the lands, and Colwick and Olin have happily ever after. And that is Acts of Service. So our next love language, number two, is words of affirmation. 
People who use this language thrive off unsolicited compliments. Hearing I love you is important, then following up with why can send them into orbit. On the flip side, insults break them apart and are not easily forgotten and rarely forgiven. So this one was a little trickier because I wanted to find something where it was like they fell in love because of words. And like, I could have really spent, honestly, fucking days digging through like Norse sagas because they have a a tradition of like rap battles and their poetry could be something similar to that but then I remembered a wonderful tale from Ovid called Pyramus and Thisbe now some of the beats of this are going to sound familiar because Pyramus and Thisbe is sort of the great grandparent to Romeo and Juliet Um, so here we go so Pyramus and Thisbe begins with in the occupied city of Babylon where two rival families are relegated into living to adjoining houses. Uh, they hate each other and they forbid the children from even interacting with each other. However, each night Pyramus goes to a crack in the wall where he recites poetry and he laments about how he is madly in love with the daughter of the rival family and how clearly that other family couldn't be as bad as his father said if they were able to produce such a beautiful daughter. And every night he recites beautiful poetry, unrealizing that there is a crack in the wall, and that crack leads to the daughter's room. So one night when Pyramus goes there to wax poetic, uh, he then hears a voice of Thisbe, who begins recounting her own poetry about her love, how he was able to seduce her and make her love him through just the power of his words, and that clearly the other family couldn't be the brutish tyrants that her father spoke about if they were able to create such beauty through only a word. So then they just kind of talked and were spoke, you know, poetry at each other between this crack and a wall. And after a while, Thisbe just said, fuck it. And she's like, Daddy, can I marry the son of the other guy? And he's like, no, absolutely fucking not. <laughs> You're like, they are our enemy. You can't just marry their son. She's like... Yes, but think about how good it would be if our families just joined. We already live in adjoining houses. He's like, I'm already upset that we're in adjoining houses, and I fired and killed that realtor, because this is Babylonian times, motherfucker. So she's like, please, father, please. And he's like, no, I forbid it. How do you even know this point? She's like, I can't let them know about the crack in the wall, otherwise they'll fix it. She's like, uh, I saw him uh, smuggling plums in the back, and he's just like, was that a euphemism for his testicles? And she's like, I couldn't think of anything better. I'm sorry. <laughs> that might have been a little bit of me speaking through that story. I couldn't think. I, I was like, smuggling plums? Shit. Can you tell I've been doing research for 12 hours today? <laughs> so, one day Pyramus is told by his mother, she's like, look, I don't know what you're doing at night where you're doing your like cute little poetry shit or whatever. But we need to think about the future of the family, and you're going to be the next head. So I've arranged for you to marry a nice little girl. And he's like, is it the daughter of the rival family? She's like, fuck no, fuck that guy. He still owes me money. Now, <laughs> you're going to marry this other bitch. And he's just like, no. So he goes to Thisbe, and he's like, tomorrow night, we need to run away. It's like, our parents will never allow our love, and I've been betrothed to another. We need to meet me by the hero's grave under the mulberry tree. And she's like... What a specific place, okay. <laughs> so then, the following night, Thisbe gets there first, and she's wearing a nice elaborate shawl. But when she gets there, she sees a lioness who is covered in blood after recently uh, successfully killing and eating something. 
uh, in her fright she uh, runs away but her shawl is left behind and uh, anybody who has experienced a cat will know that they are incredibly curious like yes there's that whole phrase curiosity killed the cat but satisfaction brought it back but it's more of the uh, part of it where it's like they just if you leave something and they don't know what it is they will just get very right into it the amount of times I've had to help Freya out of a reusable shopping bag because she got curious is absurd. So the lion sees the shawl and he gets all, and the lioness gets all tangled up in it, and so she starts like fighting with it. She tears it to pieces. There's signs of a struggle on the floor. Some of the blood on her face gets on it because like it's essentially just a napkin, you know. And then she like runs off. So then Pyramus arrives. And he's like, oh, Thisbe, my love, where are you? This will be the first time I'm laying eyes on you, so clearly I'll be able to identify your, you very easily. And there he sees a bloody shawl with signs of a struggle. And he's like, oh my god, she's dead. Which is a bit of a conclusion. You know, it could have been any murdered woman in a graveyard. Which is a sentence, but, you know, you never know. It's Babylonian times, motherfucker. So he's just like, my love is dead. I have nothing to live for. I don't care about this other woman. I'm, fuck it. And he falls on his sword, which is the traditional Babylonian suicide. That is word for word that what the translation I read said. That falling on your sword was the, quote, traditional Babylonian suicide. So then, Thisbe comes back and she's just like, if I can't, I'm like, I understand if I can't save the shawl. But I really need to let Pyramus know we need to find a new location because there's a fucking lioness here. And she gets there and she sees him dead and his blood on the mulberry tree. And she's like, no, fuck. He was hot and he's dead. And she just like looks up to the sky and she's like, I pray to the gods that even though we couldn't be together in life, that we will be either buried together or reunited in death. And she throws herself on his sword. I'm sorry that the only words of affirmation one I could find involved two teens killing themselves. Like, I did... Nobody wants to talk anymore. So, since part of this is the version I read was part of the stuff from Ovid's Metamorphosis. So, this story has a point. And the point of the story is, is that the gods took pity on Pyramus and Thisbe. So, the when their blood mixed on the mulberry bush... It forever changed the mulberries to a bright red of the mixture of the two young lovers' blood. And so not only is this a fun predecessor that people will use forever, because tragic love is uh, kind of fun, if you're into it, uh, it's also an explanation for why mulberries are such a distinct shade of red. Our third love language today is quality time. Today, these are just the love languages. Uh, anyway, it's quality time. <laughs> Uh, so those who love quality time enjoy full, undivided attention. Being there for them is crucial, and being there without distraction is even better. Like, put your phone down. It's like, just pause the game for, like, two seconds so we can make eye contact. It's like that, um, Eliza Schlesinger She's like, can you pause Halo for, like, two seconds? Just, like, do I need a jacket? Look at me. <laughs> jacket? No jacket. Jacket. Anyway, um... If you, to cite my source, that is from uh, Elias Schlesinger's Freezing Hot, which you can find on Netflix. Um, so, the things that they don't like, though, is when you postpone activities, failure to listen, or being distracted. It really hurts them, and it makes it feel like it's like, 
it makes them be like, why do I even need to be here? Like, you're not paying attention to me. So for this one, we're going Greek. And I need you to bear with me, because I know we just did a Latin one, and that ended tragically. And, like, the Greeks aren't known for their happy endings. I've talked about in previous episodes about how most uh, Greek heroes and Greek gods are sexual predators. But we don't have as much of that in this one. So this is the story of Hyacinthius and Apollo, uh, our only sa- our only uh, same-sex couple uh, on the list, which was another reason why I chose these two. Um, for the purposes of making this easier on me, uh, I'm going to refer to the character as Hyacinth. Both translations are fine. So Hyacinth was a Spartan prince, and he is known as the grandchild of Lacedaemon. Although, in sometimes in some tales, he's the son of Pyrrhus and the muse Cleo, and he was the prince of Peria. But more often than not, he's usually a Spartan prince, and is the son of King Anolius and Diomede. Which means he has such famous siblings as Argolius, Daphne, uh, Paul, and Polybius. Polybius? I can't even read what that... I don't... Polybia? Maybe? Is, is that an A? Anyway... I had a new pen, and it's very nice, but it's also very flowy, so I can't read shit. So Hyacinth was originally courted by a man named Theramus, who was the son of Philemon. However, in order to try to impress Hyacinth, uh, he challenged the muses and lost. (laughs) Now, I spoke about this on the Patreon, if you're, or not on the Patreon, but on the Discord, which you can get access to from the Patreon, where I'm just like, my toxic trait is just like, God, I would love to be the kind of hot that somebody would literally blaspheme against the gods to try to get my attention. Like that? Oh, bye bye bye. Um, but that might be just part of my toxic trait being this like, yeah, turn against your gods for me. Um, so before he was punished, Apollo was like, why did you think it was a smart idea to challenge the muse of epic poetry to a rap battle and he's just like i just really wanted to impress a pretty boy his name's hyacinth and he's like really pretty like he puts ganymede to shame and they're like ganymede you mean the cupbearer to zeus who was just plucked off the earth and i could be misremembering but ganymede means beautiful balls i need to look that up i can't spread that misinformation hold on (laughs) Okay, no. So what it is is that Ganymede's uh, original name was the Greek name, but in uh, Latin, it slowly got churched into the pejorative of, like, sodomite. So, like, there's this whole weird, like, entomology thing where uh, the word Ganymede in Latin became, like, a pejorative for gay men. And there's also, I found this thing out where there's, like, apparently there was a guy who was doing a song about his unrequited love for a straight man and he talked about uh how he wanted to be zeus and take away his ganymede uh because uh we're not gonna get into that right now but okay it does not mean beautiful balls apparently i had to look that up and i apologize because i don't want to misspread misspread i don't want to spread misinformation anyway so all the gods are just like well we need to get eyes on this boy who's so pretty that it makes people blaspheme and so they took a chariot and they took, <laughs> I love how in my notes I wrote, they took a gander at this young man, and immediately both Apollo and Zephyr, the god of the east wind, immediately fell in love with the boy. Uh, so they 
did a race, but Apollo was faster, and he went down, and he's like, hey. Hey, pretty boy. And Ganymede's like, what are you doing? And then they started just spending so much time together. Like, we're talking, like, they spent most of their waking moments together. Uh, Apollo even took him in his, of the sun chariot. They went about. I'm sure there was a, <laughs> since I'm continuing to make porno, porno jokes, I'm sure Artemis had a moment which is like, in front of my salad. <laughs> if you get that joke, I'm sorry. But, um, and like, Apollo taught him how to hunt, how to play the lyre, how to use the bow. He would often go on hunting expeditions with him and Artemis, and Artemis is like, you can bring your boy toy. Like, that's fine. Uh, because she is both an ally and a good sister. And, like, gets a lot more malignment than she deserves in myth, to be honest. Like, leave Artemis alone. She's fine. She's doing her thing. Like, if people want to, like, just be virgins in the woods, let them be fucking virgins in the woods. Like, whatever. So, one day, Apollo is just like, well, I've been teaching you a bunch of stuff, and there's, like, you mean that thing with my tongue? And he's like, no, 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 no. I, I am in a mood today. But, um, he's like, we're gonna learn discus today. So, he's like, I'm gonna throw it, you can go catch it. So, it's, like, kind of like Frisbee, but, like, he's, like, showing him, like, the proper form and how to do, like, a good discus throwing, because, like, you know, maybe Hyacinth is gonna be the pretty boy in the Olympic Games. So, Apollo throws the discus, but Zephyr is in the wings, and he's just like, I want to make Apollo look bad, so I'm gonna make him look like he's a shit throw. So, he uses to win to blow the discus back. However, what happens is that he blows the discus back and it bounces off the earth. And when uh, Hyacinth goes to grab it, it hits him in the head and he is killed on the spot. Now, don't freak out. I know. Like, I did warn you that half these people were going to die. However, the story doesn't quite end there. Well, some versions of the story do. In some, like, in some versions, uh, Apollo tries to resurrect him. But, you know, his knowledge of medicine is, you know, mixed and resurrecting the dead is a lot bigger task, so he doesn't make it. On the flip side, however, there are versions where he does either resurrect him by himself, or he gets the assistance of his sister Artemis and Athena, and he, they're able to resurrect Hyacinth and make him immortal, and he gets to take him back to Olympus with him. In all versions of the story, however, Aphrodite being like, well, this is a Greek myth, and we need to immortalize love somehow, turns his his blood shed on the ground into hyacinth flowers and that's how you get the hyacinth flower because most of the plants in greek mythology are either from dead people or their people turned into them not to deal with people and that is quality time that one's a bit of a stretch i know because you know but like one of the big things that are usually spoken about in the story of hyacinth and apollo is that they spent every waking moment together and even sometimes there would be times where like they people would be like where's apollo and they're like oh he's probably on earth in some fucking meadow with hyacinth asleep in his arms and it's like which is like kind of sweet but yeah so that is our third story so our fourth love language is physical touch now a person who enjoys physical touch is obviously someone who is incredibly touchy-feely this isn't limited to just people who are like my love language is fucking or i don't like, we, actually, it's kind of the opposite of that. Uh, uh, is his name Dorian Gray? I think that's wrong. That has to be wrong, because that's a portrait of Dorian Gray. What the fuck was his name? The guy from Fifty Shades of Gray. 
the famous line i don't make love i fuck this, these people are the opposite they're like i don't fuck i make love so they're very touchy-feely they like hugs pat on the back or like those involuntary light touches you can do sometimes like you ever do you ever those moments when you're with your partner and you're just sitting there and you're both doing something on the couch like this might be closer to like it starts off seeing more like it's a quality time thing and then just one of you just reaches over and just starts like rubbing your thumb on their hand like yeah that's the good shit that's quality t- that's that's quality time that's physical touch that kind of in just like the yeah i'm here and i'm just glad that you know skin to skin uh inappropriate touchings or poorly timed touches can be destructive um for example you know the friggin' thing where it's like um no when i'm showing off angry face this is not the time for a hug but a well-timed hug can communicate warmth safety and love now the physical touch story i chose was fucking just because i really wanted to tell the story <laughs> i've had this story on the docket for a while because but it's not quite a yokai tale so i couldn't put it in any of those and i learned about it after i did all those female monster episodes in season one but i just oh god i wanted to fucking tell this one it's hilarious so we're going into it uh spoiler alert uh, more people are gonna die but uh it's fun shut up so this is the botan doro or the red peony lantern story so a young student named Saburo Ogiwara falls in love with a beautiful woman named Otsuyu, who is the daughter of his father's best friend. Uh, they are immediately smitten. They're young. You figure you got to figure. Um, they're probably in their late teens, early twenties, and they promise to get married when Ogiwara comes back from university. So he comes back from university, and he's like, "All right, let's." get it otsuyu and he is informed that otsuyu has actually died of a illness that struck their household while he was gone bereaved he you know is sad and he's like well luckily there's a festival for the dead coming and i'll be able to pay my respects and kind of see if i can you know pray i'll pray for her spirit and see if i should just move on and he goes and he's praying for her spirit when two women approach him and lo and behold one of them is the spitting image of Otsuyu and he's just like I was told you were dead and she's like well first well as funny is that I were told that you were dead so either one of us is seeing a ghost or this was a plot by my aunt who hates you and she didn't want us to be married because she didn't like your dad who is my dad's friend and he's like that's insane and she's like that is insane so we got to keep our relationship on the down low so I hope this isn't too weird, but really what we should do is I have my servant here with a red peony lantern. And what we're going to do is I'm going to sneak into your house at night and we're just going to have crazy mad dog sex all night. And then I'm going to leave at dawn so that nobody gets suspicious. And he's like, I like this plan. (laughs) So this happened. So what happens is, is that at night, the maid carries her red peony lantern and Otsuyu goes in they go in they spend the entire night fucking and then the as they know it's time for her to leave when the red peony lantern is starting to be put out because that means that dawn is approaching and she has to leave so they don't find out about their tryst so on the one hand as a man ogiwara is having a great time on the other hand his servants are concerned for him because his health is failing he's not sleeping at all he's sleeping weird hours and so one day in order to check up at him 
uh, one of his servants takes a peek through a crack in the wall, and what does he see? But his master Ogiwara having sex with a skeleton. Yes, and then he goes around the corner in shock, and he sees a skeleton holding a red peony lantern. So he's like, "Ah, oh, fuck! Oh, fuck! I need to get the hell out of here!" So he runs, and he runs through the night, and he uh, is screaming, and he gets to the uh, house of the local Buddhist monk, and he's like, "Holy shit! You're never gonna guess what's happening! Oh my god! Oh my god!" And he's like, "Take a deep breath. What's going on?" He's like, "My boss is fucking a skeleton," <laughs> and he's like, "I'm sorry, what?" He's like, "My boss is fucking a skeleton," and there's a skeleton outside his door, and they got red peony lanterns, and something's going on and my boss is fucking a skeleton and and the Buddhist man was like okay has your master lost someone in his life recently he's like when he came back from uh, schooling he found out that the girl he was meant to marry was dead he's like okay what's her name he's like I think it was like Otsuyu or something he's like okay so the following day the Buddhist monk comes stops by and he's like you must be Ogiwara and he's like yes he's like you seem very tired he's like I was up last night doing something and he's like yes I'm aware come with me and he's just like i heard that you've been having some late night trysts and he's like did one of my servants tell you were we being loud and he's like well it wasn't that you were being loud and then he brings him to the grave he's like you're fucking a dead woman and he's like oh oh my god (laughs) and he's like what do i do and he's like okay the first thing you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to stop fucking this dead woman and he's like oh I don't know if I can though because like yes everybody else sees her as this like decaying skeleton but she just seems like the beautiful girl I fell in love with all those years ago he's like dude you're fucking a dead spirit she is literally sucking the life force out of you he's like well what am I gonna do I don't know if I'm gonna be able to resist and he's like okay what we're gonna do is I'm gonna do some I'm gonna do some praying around your house because we definitely need to clean out that fucking energy and I'm going to hang tal- protective talismans that are called Ofuda on your home to protect you from it so that they cannot answer. And he's like, and when they're, they're going to continue to keep showing up and you have to be strong. And he's like, I need you to think with your top head, not your dick, your main head. No Buddhist monk would talk like this. <laughs> I am doing a terrible rendition of this one. No Buddhist monk would tell someone not to think with their dick. <laughs> But anyway, stop thinking about you, Dick. And if you can resist their temptations for a week, they'll give up on you. And he's like, a week is a long time. And he's like, you literally cannot keep fucking a skeleton. And he's just like, okay, I'll do my best. So the, the prayers are done. The talismans go up. And he's just like, okay. And he's like, I want a couple servants ready so that I don't get tempted and start fucking a dead woman again. And they're just like, weird ask, but okay. So, th- the, they, the night goes, comes. Otsuya's like, come, I, why can't I enter your home? And he's like, I recently got it painted, and I don't want to, you, there to be a mess. And she's just like, oh, well, you could come with me. And he's like, I think it'll be okay if we take a little time for ourselves, because we don't want to be those people who are just like the couple who's like, oh my god, you can't ever spend time with one of them without the other. They're just glued at the hip. And she's like, I bet you want to be on my hips. And he's like, I gotta go to bed. I'll see you later. Bye. And this occurs for a couple more days. And then on the fourth day, because it has to be the fourth day, um, because of the Japanese association with the number four and death. The fourth day, he's like, oh, fuck it, I can't resist. And so he waits for his servants to fall asleep, and he's just like, and he sneaks outside, and she's like, well, since you're having all this construction done at your place, why don't you come to my place, and we can fuck there? And he's like, 
Yes, ma'am. Uh, and then the next morning, his servants wake up. They're like, fuck, he's gone. So they start running around. They start screaming. They go to the booth. And they're like, have you seen the master? And he's like, no, what happened? He's like, he's not in the house. All the talismans are still up. So they didn't get into the house. He's like, son of a bitch. He couldn't resist the dead woman. So they start running. And they run to the graveyard. And in the grave, they see Otsuya's grave is freshly dug. And they look inside. And they see Ogiwara completely nude. Massive erection. In trunk like entangled with a, the skeleton of his lover dead with a smile on his face and that is the story of the botandoro one i really wanted to tell but couldn't find a good way to do it until now so our last one for today is the final love language which was the lowest one on my list which was gift giving so not to be confused with materialism people who would speak the language of giving love thoughtful gifts that make them feel seen a missed event or a hasty, thoughtless gift is uh, heartbreaking. And also, they don't feel special if they get, like, just, like, everyday meaningless gestures. Like, they want that. Here's that gift. It's incredibly thoughtful. Thank you. So this one was harder than I thought it would be to try to find a story where the love came from gifts. But then, who came to my rescue but good old Arthuriana? So this is the story of Sir Lonfall. And what really helped is that this one's in French. So there's so many vowels. It's like the word oiseau, which is the French word for bird, which has every single vowel in it, and yet you pronounce none of them. It's a seven-letter word, and it's pronounced oiseau. So I need to take shit the piss out of other languages just so I don't make the Welsh people feel bad, because I, I like Welsh, but, you know, French is a stupid language too. All languages are stupid if you really get down to into it. But anyway... So Sir Landfall is one of the uh, retainers of King Arthur, and he's the one in charge of the like, planning of celebrations and feasts because he has a strong chivalric code when it comes to gifts and like the equivocacy of gifts. Uh, he works there as a faithful steward of King Arthur for 10 years, and then one day Merlin comes in and he brings a woman for Arthur named Guinevere from Ireland. Now, in most versions of the stories I've told about Guinevere, we've had mixed uh, approval about her actions, whether it be the cucking or the time she saw her dead mom in the woods and had frogs on her titties. And she's like, the dick ain't worth it. She's like, I don't know, but this French man could do crazy things with his tongue. And friggin' it's like, did he learn it from Apollo? Callback. Um, <laughs> but anyway, at this point, she is known for her uh, brash behavior and promiscuity and uh, mean tongue so she's she is not she is not the protagonist or a good character in our tale for today um in some versions of the tale she tries to uh, immediately tries to seduce sir lonfell uh in other versions she just uh, straight up insults him uh the final straw is that when her and arthur marry one of the customary things to do is to give gifts to welcome as like a thank you for being welcomed into the family to the stewards. And she didn't get Sir Lonful a gift. And Sir Lonful's like, fuck you. And he leaves the court. And he's like, fuck you, fuck this, fuck No, absolutely not. I did not spend 10 years of service not to get him a fucking present. So he leaves. And he returns to his hometown of Carleon, which is in southern Wales. Sounds very French, but it's in southern Wales. It's near some of the 
It's near a Roman fort nowadays. Uh, so after going through his savings, he descends into a life of poverty. However, a lot of people are like, you're a former knight of the round. Like, you're a former member of Camelot. Like, we can help you if needed. And he's like, no, I will not accept gifts that I cannot properly pay back you for. And I am in no way able to pay back these things, especially the gifts that you're offering me. My labor is not enough to account for these things, so I cannot take them. Showing a very interesting... Uh, Showing a sense that his chivalric honor is greater than his need to, I don't know, survive. So, one day, it is said, they find out that the king is throwing a banquet for Trinity Sunday in Carleon. And uh, Lawnfall is like, oh, it'd be nice to see Arthur again, because I did like him. It's his wife that was the insufferable bitch. And the mayor's daughter is just like, would you like to go see Arthur? If you'd like, I'll take you. I have a plus one. And he's like, I am greatly uh, appreciative of your offer, but I have to decline because I don't have anything good enough to wear, let alone for meeting the king, but something that could prop that I could wear that will properly show that I deserve to be the plus one to the, such a prestigious and kind woman. And she's just like, I'm going to assume that's a compliment, which it is, and I respect your decision. So he's just like, I'm just going to skip town for a minute because I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. So he goes, he rides into the woods and falls asleep under a tree where he's found by two fairy women. And they're just like, he's hot and he has a good moral compass. You know who will love him? Our queen. So he wakes up and he's in the pavilion and he meets with the beautiful Tierra Mor, who is the daughter of the king of Orion, uh, which in later translations, she's the daughter of the king of Avalon the fairy realm in this in the version i'm reading from uh it's the isle of orion which is not which is a fairy island that's like near it's in like the fairy archipelago <laughs> so it's like oh yeah if you want to go to avalon you know you can take the ferry it comes at like four and you just gotta hit the guy you know two golden coins but don't tell him your name otherwise you're stuck working on the boat for a year um shit like that so she's just like She's like, I love that you're a pretty man with a sense of duty. And he's like, you're also very pretty. And she's like, you seem tired. Why don't you come rest? So he lies with her, which is oftentimes a euphemism that they fuck. And she's just like, she's like, I'd like to give you some gifts. He's like, I don't think I heard it. She's like, I I don't know why my brain's going so crude. Because <laughs> my immediate... <laughs> My meaning that's just like with that deep dick and you've earned things. Um, she's just like he's like I love you and she's like I love you too and that's why I'm gonna give you presents. And he's just like I haven't earned these presents. She's like you earned them with your love. And that good deep dick and in a way it's one of the very few stories where uh, you have a male sex worker in an Arthurian tale. Um, so she's like I'm gonna give you this beautiful horse. It's named Blanchard. I'm gonna give you an invisible servant whose name is Giffre. And you're going to have an enchanted bag that will always have the correct amount of money in it for what you wish to buy for. And she's like, I only have one request of you. He's like, I will do anything for you because these gifts feel way too extravagant for my 20 minutes of missionary or whatever we did. And she's just like, you cannot tell anyone that you have a mistress with me. My existence cannot be known by mortals, only to you. When you wish for me, you will have to be fully alone. 
and I will know when you, and she's like if you if you call for me and I do not arrive know that it's like depending on the scenario it might be just because you're not fully alone and he's like okay I can do this for you she's like okay I love you bye I'll I'll call you next time I need it so he's returned to Carleon when he gets there the mayor's daughter comes by she's like there's um five workhorses covered in golden gifts for you at the manor and he's just like oh okay he's like what i would like to do is i would like to thank all the people who have been kind to me in my fall from grace since i have left the camelot and so i'm going to give away all of these gifts to the people who have been kind to me including you the mayor's daughter and his generosity uh makes goes no bounds in some versions of the story, there is a knight called Sir Valentus, who's very pissed off that there's a knight out there who's, like, giving away shit. And he's like, I'm going to kick your ass and take your stuff with skill. And he then, uh, through the power of his horse Blanchard and uh, Giffrey being able to constantly give him back his armaments when Valentinus knocks him away, so it seems like he can magically constantly be armed, uh, he defeats Valentus. So... After hearing about this uh, great defeat of a warrior and also his uh, strong, compassionate, uh, gift-giving spirit, Arthur asks uh, if Lawnfall would be willing to come back to Camelot and host the festival of the Feast of St. John. And Lawnfall agrees. So when he gets back, Guinevere's like, oh, isn't it nice that Arthur was allowing to take you back? She's like, even you came back with your tail between your legs. Although I doubt it's big enough to be considered a tail, that thing between your legs. And he's like, listen up, bitch. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, the woman I'm with, even her ugliest servant would make a better queen than you. And then immediately his invisible servant disappears and his horse turns into a donkey. And he's like, oh, sh shit, that counts as talking about my mistress. And Guinevere's like, how dare you? And she runs to Arthur. She's like, you're, new not, you're fucking steward just called me an ugly whore and said I don't deserve to be queen. I want him dead. So Arthur's like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna hold a trial. Uh, Sir Lonfell, go to your room and uh, don't come out until we call for you tomorrow. And he's like, fine. So he goes in there and he tries to call for Tietermere, uh, but she doesn't show up and he's like, shit, I really fucked up. He's like, he's like, I don't care. Like, as he's begging, he's like, I don't care about the gifts keep all the gifts all i want is to see your smile once more and it doesn't work she doesn't show up now one could interpret that it was because there was other people in the castle so he couldn't be true she couldn't be certain he was truly alone other versions of the story say that this is her testing him so he goes to trial merlin appears and he's like I have four knights who would like to act as character witnesses that Sir Lawnfell is not the type of man to needlessly slander. In addition, I was there and heard the interaction and heard our queen make an a, incredibly rude comment about Sir Lawnfell's manhood, which could have caused him to react negatively. And Arthur's just like, God damn it, Guinevere. Like, stop. Like, you can't be picking fights with people. This is stupid. This whole trial's stupid. He's like, I'm sorry this has happened, but from what I hear, you have found a new, you are with a someone. And he's like, I would like to know about this woman 
who is this? He's like, you have worked with me for many years, and I appreciate your years of service. And it would bring me great joy to be able to meet this woman who makes you so happy. And Lonfell's like, I can't, because I wasn't supposed to tell people she existed. And I don't know if I'm ever actually going to be able to see her again. And he starts crying on the sand. Guinevere's like, okay, yeah, let me guess. She goes to another castle. <laughs> She's probably not real. You know what? I bet you if she's like, I will blind myself if you can get this alleged beauty woman to arrive within the next fortnight. And Arthur's like, this is an arbitrary and stupid bet. And she's like, honey, we're doing this. <laughs> she's like, and if you can't bring this beautiful woman to court, then you have no proof that you actually have a mistress and you have lied under court. You've perjured yourself, and you will be executed. And he's just like, what the fuck did I do to piss you off? And she's like, this is my arc. I'm a bitch with a backstory this time. So the fortnight passes, and it's time for the day, and Longfell has been unable to contact Tiramir at all. And he's so he's like, I deserve this. I broke, our, I broke her trust in me. I am not the knight she deserved. And he holds himself tall, and he begins to walk to the executioner's block. And then there's the sound of trumpets, as f as multiple beautiful maidens in two rows walk in. And at the back is Gwefer, who is now visible, and Tiramir riding in on the beautiful horse. Where is, oh my god, I just said his fucking name. Blauchard. And she walks in. And she, she's like, she goes and she shakes Arthur's hand. She's like, I am Tiedermer. I am Sir Longfell's wife. Thank you for your, uh, thank you for the kindness you showed my husband for the years. And then she goes and she blows gently on Guinevere's eyes and blinds her. And she's like, that's what you get for fucking with my man, bitch. And then Longfell is overjoyed to see her again. And she said, I was upset that you told people about me, but I heard your cries. And when you, I real and she's like, and the fact that you loved me more than my gifts spoke volumes to me. She's like, I know. She's like, I like to give presents, but the greatest gift you have given me is your true love. And then he gets on to Blanchard. She gets on. She rides like side saddle. They do that classic thing at the end of these type of stories where they share a kiss and then they ride off into the sunset. And he's never seen in Arthur's court again. However. Uh, certain tournaments there is some argue that Blauchard returns with a knight clad in beautiful silver armor who does not take off his helmet and is able to defeat any knight placed against him and that is the story of Sir Longfall and that one time Guinevere's a real fucking bitch and that's going to do it for a Valentine's Day special I did not realize this one was going to be a bit longer uh, I hope this makes up for the fact that the yokai rideshare parade was a little bit of a shorter episode um, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. As always, if you like it, um, tell a friend about the podcast. Uh, you can also uh, please go on to your podcast platform of you choosing and rate it five stars. If you want to support the podcast fiduciarily and get access to bonus episodes, the next bonus episode is actually going to be on uh, February 29th. Um, normally, it would come out on Wednesday the 28th, but uh, that's my birthday. And uh, I don't want to think about it on my birthday. <laughs> so... We are not going to. So uh, next week, we will be doing uh, the next Patreon bonus episode, uh, 
currently at the moment it's i'm thinking of doing it's going to be more history focused i haven't decided if i'm going to tell you about the uh haunting of ludon or if i'm going to do something about archaeology it's going to be one of those two and you can look for that is a patreon only episode uh that'll be out on the 29th in addition if you are a patron uh instead of getting these episodes every other friday you get them every other monday and lastly as always if you want to get in contact with me uh you can find uh the social medias uh i am on instagram tiktok and uh goodreads uh which i haven't updated and needed to uh at the tag of white trash historian feel free to reach out and uh, as always uh thank you for listening and i will see you again in two weeks um i haven't decided yet if in two weeks the episode is going to be a me- we're gonna go <laughs> complete opposite direction and be like now we're gonna talk about tragic love or if i'm going to do another i have an episode planned with a smattering of greek myths so it's going to be one of those two and uh, uh, I will also announce on the Discord, potentially, if I figure that out. Uh, and yeah, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, have a good week, and uh, blessed be. Bye.